Hello, folks. Welcome back to Culture Dumps. This is Ryan Lichten. This is Parks Miller. Uh, congratulations, us. This is our official 100th episode. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I plan on going much harder from now on uh, in in dump world. Be, you know, kind of could kind of we're taking a little bit, bit of a mellow ride here, but uh, you know, it's all in preparation, you know, cuz n- now we get to do all these big ones that we've been saving cuz we did 100 not not necessarily Damn. 100 dumps, but uh we've done oh, I mean, we've done more technically in well, a way. Well, the interviews and stuff, but yeah, yeah. Uh, this is like, and then some of them, you know, were multiple parts, uh, which this one will be. This is part one of our uh, our one hundredth episode special, uh, and it's Anna Nicole Smith, as, as we we mentioned on the last one. Very very excited. Yeah, I mean, this is one that you know I know is near and dear to Ryan's heart. Oh yeah, and has been saving it, and I think. You know, I got to thank you, Ryan, for opening my eyes to the <laughs> complexity of the subject. I I feel like this uh, dump has a lot of, it, it deals a lot with media and celebrity. And I, I feel like maybe before I met Ryan or got to know his passion for the subject, I think I probably fell into a pretty stereotypical what the media kind of feeds you about about the subject right so. yeah which is which is a lot and it made this one very difficult to research because everyone had something to say but no one was saying a lot you know um so you know for like our, our biggest resource was the book blonde ambition the untold story behind anna nicole smith's death by rita cosby uh it's it's incredible and it it covers i mean it really does focus on like the last month of her life um but it you know, it does tell the rest of the story, so it was a great for fact checking. But also the Hulu, you know, it's on Hulu right now. The uh, the twenty twenty episode on Anna Nicole Smith, uh, which is kind of, I would say, as far as documentaries go, it's the best. Also, there's the Netflix one, which was good. You know, for more of like a down home home video feel. Um, there's a lot. I mean, also I used one a documentary called Dying to Be Famous, which we won't get to until the last part of this series but uh yeah it it really is weird that for being the most publicized person of the year of her death and like really i mean from the time that she exploded on the scene up until her death like she was just so in the media at all points in time but there really hasn't been like a quintessential like here's everything that actually happened and why and what it means and that's what Mm -hmm. we do here so yeah i think it i think it always you know needing some time so you can reflect on it um i think that also a lot of just the tabloidal scandalous nature of some of her life i think kind of contributed to this feeling of like "Mm, like don't go there or like don't want to touch that uh because there's it's there's a lot of like sort of scandal and like a lot of in, in very traditional moral senses that we're going to get into. Well, it's like I mean this is like dump by inquirer, you know, and um mm-hmm. like you know the rules have changed as far as how we look at celebrities, particularly female celebrities, particularly like sex pots like Anna Nicole Smith was and the bo- the blonde bombshell. Right, and know? like the way that we we discuss that and judge judge celebrities and all that stuff has changed uh, and she was really kind of like right in that era of just like slamming you every day um but we'll we'll get into all of that but first 
Why is it a dump? Well, Anna Nicole Smith is a dump because she was the last in a long line of classic sex symbols. Throughout Hollywood history, or showbiz history for that matter, there have been a small handful of absolute sex pot bombshell icons. From Jean Harlow to Marilyn Monroe, Jane Mansfield to Pamela Anderson, and finally Anna Nicole Smith. The buxom blonde has been a tried and true cliche that has made thousands of people millions of dollars. In fact, the only people who didn't get to fully cash in on their looks were the sex symbols themselves. In no case was that more true than with Anna Nicole Smith. But Anna was different. Unlike Marilyn Monroe, Anna Nicole Smith has left an endless amount of journalists, including myself, at a loss for words when attempting to properly tell her story. How does one laugh and cry at the same time? Only through examining her entire life can we begin to truly understand the importance of someone that I am here to say was an absolute angel. Mm. Yeah, great, great intro. You know, and I think, yeah, I think part of it is that sometimes I find myself thinking like, well, you know, who was, you know, how do I feel about some of this story? And I think part of it, it really goes into this, the tabloid and media coverage where I'm like, wait, maybe I shouldn't even have an opinion about this person's life. But yeah, the problem like, is, <laughs> is that you know so much about their life as a celebrity and then you start casting judgment because I mean, yeah, some of the details, you're just kind of like, I don't know what to to make of it. Um, but ultimately, she, yeah, she was an icon and uh, it's interesting to even... Uh, compare her to Marilyn Monroe because I think I don't know if it's just that the time of her passing has been longer and there's been a lot more time to kind of create Marilyn Monroe as this like truly sort of like a golden like untouchable icon but there is it feels like she does she did have she did capture the American uh, eye in in a very similar way as Marilyn uh, but in a very 90s and 2000s way. Well, she goes through like the whole like path. Like, you, like I, I mentioned Jean Harlow. Like she was, you know, like you're talking silver screen, you know, goddess from from, from back in the in the glory days of Hollywood. And you know, you had uh, you had men manipulating her career, manipulating her personal life, and you know, just like this tragic, you know, death that that came too soon. And then you know, with Marilyn Monroe, you have like the flashing lights that everyone in the world is obsessed with her she can't you know breathe without a story being written about it and then years later she's looked at as kind of this tragic figure as opposed to like right. the icon of glamour jane mansfield who really mm -hmm. made like tried to become the next Marilyn Monroe and kind of became a laughing stock and then kind of owned that much like how like paris hilton kind of puts on the fake voice and has come out in recent interviews saying like yeah i was in on it like the whole time mm -hmm. or like an angeline or something um but then like pamela anderson who you know was so respected and then just starts doing kind of B stuff and and just sex scandal kind of affected her career in, in such a big way but is now still revered as a uh, you know a, as an icon and luckily we didn't lose we didn't lose Pam but uh, yeah I mean yeah I think that is yeah I mean there are there are a lot of similarities with Pamela Anderson and, and Nicole Smith though obviously the sex tape scandal being like sort of maybe one of the biggest deviations uh, but Anna Nicole Smith tragically died very young. And that is also, the, you know, Pamela Anderson being alive, I think, has, you know, had some a lot of opportunity to sort of reshape her legacy. Totally. Uh, 
You could throw uh, Monica Lewinsky too in terms of like nine, like scandalous '90s women who right. kind of were viewed one way and are now are receiving like a much different reevaluation of their place in culture and history. Well, and you know, with with Anna Nicole, Marilyn Monroe, Pamela Anderson, you also have the Playboy connection. Uh, you know, and like yep. there, there's been many a tragic of figures and and tragedies and scandals that have uh, come come from that world. But before we even started the show, Culture Dumps, our, I, like my original idea was to just do an Anna Nicole Smith podcast. We talked about that on our last episode, uh, Pickles, Pills, and Playboy. But there's so many other things we <laughs> wanted to talk about. And also, I just wasn't ready to like dive in as hard as I knew I would want to because, again, I'm a huge fan. There's a couple dumps where I'm like, I'm actually really into this, so I need to yes. like do it the right way. And R- uh, Ryan is really into Anna Nicole. I have an Anna, um, dude, I'm looking at right right now. I have an Anna Nicole Smith collection. I got two bobbleheads, one in box, one out of box. I have a limited edition Hot Wheels with with her face printed on it. Uh, I got the Playboys. I got the Inquirers. I got every movie she was in, the show, the documentaries, all that stuff. I love her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean one uh I've I've visited him out in LA a few times and uh it seems like part of Part of the ritual of coming out is at some point we put on <laughs> the Anna Nicole Smith uh, DVD well, it's, uh, on it's his to couch keep it, and just re- revisit that that time capsule. It's to of, keep it in the forefront of your brain, you know. So yes. so it's never been never too forget. long. Yeah, it's never been too long mm. since the last time you've seen it. That's why I always put it on. Uh, but also, I loved when like I first showed you it, and uh, not to like because the next episode we're going to get into her TV show, but. Uh, you know, the, one of the first episodes, I think it is the first episode, she's house shopping and she can't get out of the bathtub on her own because the bathtub's too small. And she's like, I yeah. have too much candy today. And you're like, I'm in love. <laughs> and like, I thought that was like the funniest <laughs> yeah. fucking shit. Um, and yeah, th- this is, th- this is uh, a very unusual dump because, you know, we researched our topics fairly heavily, some more than others, you know, depending on the need. But this one, I've literally been researching since the start. Like, I've had notebooks, like, with, the- with stuff on this since we started. Um, and a lot of people get it wrong when I describe what the show is all about. Like, yes, we talk shit, we make jokes, but above all, we try to deliver the facts. And there has not been a single topic that we have covered where- that I cared about as much as this one, with the exception of maybe stock 99 which we have a whole separate show for um so you know while we're gonna make jokes obviously i do deeply care about this story and want to preserve her legacy in a way that it hasn't been done before and that is fairly and you know with all the facts now that it's been long enough so with all that being all right well i'll I'll be your i'll be your uh joke checker then uh okay (laughs) yeah my spotter I'll (laughs) i'll try to be your joke spotter yeah so so let's get to it her humble fried chicken beginnings the woman we know as Anna Nicole Smith was born Vicki Lynn Hogan on November 28, 1967, in Houston, Texas, to a 16-year-old Virgie May Hogan. Virgie would go on to become a deputy sheriff and by all accounts, except for one very late-in-life interview with Anna, was close with her daughter but strict. Her strictness is understandable. She didn't want to see Anna go through the same things that she did. But as we all learn, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Throughout her childhood and early teens, the young Vicky Lynn, a.k.a. Anna Nicole, we're going to use those names interchangeably until she officially changes her name, by the way, so get used to that uh, for this episode. But she found herself in trouble on a regular basis, whether it was drinking, fighting with boys who targeted her for one reason or another, or poor performance in school, Anna was going down a path her sheriff mother did not approve of. With her mother's disapproval came the first of many tragic turns in the life of Anna Nicole Smith. 
In a desperate attempt to set her daughter straight, Virgie sent Vicky to live with her aunt and cousins in a little-known place called Mejia, Texas. Now, uh, she wasn't a bad kid per se. She was just dealt a series of bad hands, you know, like getting busted here. For some reason, being the target of bullying, a lot of that, I think, has to do with her looks. You know, like, boy, like that's just like that schoolyard thing. Like, you tend to pick on who you have a crush on kind of a thing. Yeah. She but, was, you know, in the 70s like, in Texas, like, that meant, like, a, bo- right. a boy punching you in the face. It seems like, yeah, she was very attractive at a young age and was, like, you know, getting the attention of men and boys from a very young age. And also, you know, what sometimes that can just, like, be seen as, like, a, like a bad thing. Um, yeah, especially, like, 70s. Small towns, whatever it could still potentially, depending on you know what your views are. Um, I want to say also that this is already falls into this kind of perfect Hollywood story in a lot of ways. Like you've got the young, sweet, like Southern Texas gal from a small town, yeah. you know, and she's gonna and here she's gonna end up in Hollywood on the bright lights and billboards. Um, but so it, it has that it has a very Hollywood uh, thing to it. It's like anyone, anybody from anywhere can like go to L.A. and like, you know, right. make it make it big. Um, also, Vicky Lynn is that that is such a like Southern like Texas sounding name. I know. You know? I mean, I, I love it. I, I, I think uh, if her last That's name, a great name, if her last name wasn't Hogan, uh, like if, mm. if she just kept Smith, like Vicky Lynn Smith works just as well as Anna Nicole. But um, mm-hmm. but we'll get to all that later. Also, you know, uh, another thing that she was starting to get in trouble for right before she moved was she found that she could use her body and her looks to gain acceptance um, as opposed to being bullied for it. So it's like, well, these boys seem to like me a lot more if I like kiss them or show a little skin or, or what or what have you, you know, fumblings in the back seat or, you know, whatever it may have been. Um, and that will be something that stays with I her. I mean, yeah, it. It did seem like her relationship with her mother, you know, wasn't great. It didn't seem like something that she wanted to talk about uh, too much. And, you know, potentially finding uh, that, you know, the attention she could get uh, from, you know, from men for her looks or her charms or whatever, sure. you know, is a way to, you know, to feel like an acceptance or an approval. So, right. And and also, folks, I mean, again, we have these great sources, but when you're going through, you know, interviews with people that were around her around this time, some details go back and forth. So, like, I've read that she was born in Mejia, moved to Houston. Her mom sent her back, born in Houston, sent to Mejia. But uh, either way, uh, she ended up in Mejia. And Mejia, Texas was your quintessential small Texas town with a present-day population of around 7,000 people. The only thing more prevalent than boredom in Mejia are the dreams of escaping it. One of Anna's childhood friends, Joe McElmore, has described at length the monotony and general hopelessness of the town. According to McElmore, there was really only two things to do, drink and drag Maine. And you know it's a small town when they say drag Maine. Like, like that is, yeah. mm-hmm. like, which essentially, if you don't, if you live in uh, too big of a town to have ever heard that, that just means driving down the biggest street in town, which in a town like Mejia probably means the only street with lights. It's it's like um, American Graffiti. That's like the entire... 
American Graffiti movie is they're just driving up and down the main street. Right. Yeah. Drag, listening to rock dr- and roll. Dragon Main, drinking beer, riding in the riding in the uh, the bed of trucks and, and all that stuff. Uh, also, her friend Joe, when, when discussing drinking, said that they pretty much only drank beer, which I love that, too, where it's because like, you could get drunk on such like less alcohol if you're drinking the hard shit. But I love that it's like Texas. So it's like, no, we have to drink beer only uh and again that will set the stage for anna's kind of down home personality and like kind of one of the guys personality that will you know help her and hurt her later on in life um but yeah i mean that that was teen life in mejia back then and as far as i know that is still what teen life is like that same main is being dragged still littered with beer cans and not much has changed so yeah and oh sorry i can't remember if you had said it but like she you know, she was raised, you know, by a single mother. Right. So, you know, f- her father wasn't present. And I do think that that, you know, could play a lot into um, it, it. It's going to play a lot into her character. And well, her life, absolutely. You know? I mean, yeah. So her mom, yeah, was a sheriff. So like she had, you know, they had money and stuff. She wasn't necessarily like destitute or anything like that. But the mom wasn't home a lot, you know. And then also like when you're, a, you know, a sheriff, you don't want your daughter to be the one being hauled into the station with all the boys after getting caught with beers and stuff. So that, that became a, an aspect of it as well. But yeah, with her dad not being there and then with boys hurt, like, you know, literally physically harming her in, in school and stuff like that, like getting it like literally where she had to fight, you know, guys. Uh, I think that that instilled something in her to where this, just this everlasting longing for male acceptance, which ladies you don't need, by the way, man, ain't shit <laughs> I've heard, but, uh, Fucking that that that's where that all starts. So aside from going from a big city environment with some level of opportunity like Houston to an incredibly small town like Mahea, Anna ran into other problems her mother could not foresee. Anna suffered both physical and sexual abuse at the hands of some of her family members. The depression and trauma that came from this experience drove Anna to move out of her family's house and into the home of friend Joe Macklemore. But even with the new home life, Anna again, then Vicky Lynn, still suffered trauma, mostly due to bullying in school. So in 10th grade, she dropped out of school and got her first job working the counter at Jim's Crispy Fried Chicken. Jim's is still around. That's how small Mejia is. Like the, wow. they have one fried chicken place and that's all they need. Have you ever been to Jim's? I've never been to Mejia. It, I, I mean, it just seems like something you would do. I would. Like, yeah. I, I feel like going to Jim Jim's, you would be they'd be like, yeah, we get like two people a year who come yeah. looking for <laughs> for the Anna Nicole tribute. Well, you know that they have like a picture of her up like I'm sure they'd have to. I mean, there's small towns in Georgia. There's like a old ice cream place that like when i'm driving to savannah that has like this picture like all these pictures of this like football player who right. like, i guess made it professional so like i could only imagine i hope they would have some sort of like well because like, you- then that's also fits into the narrative like oh now i got this like job at this fried chicken place in this tiny town like you know like i gotta i gotta get out of this but, small like, town like this beautiful- is some bruce springsteen type you know, sorry totally. setting. I got, I got to get out of here. It's also a country song. It's a Reba McIntyre song. Like she was making chicken at the local. Like you know, you can hear it like <laughs> yeah, right, right, yeah. fucking now. But um, yeah. Also, like there's people working there still that worked with Anna back then, and they're more than happy to do TV interviews because one of them was uh, 
in the in the episode of like the 2020 episode about her mm. like um basically the father of anna nicole's daughter uh daniel lynn they go to mejia and like do like sightseeing and like she's like oh yeah i like you look just like her and i was here and mm. i'm just like fucking that is i mean yeah like hey job but security also, is chill but it's fucking kind of bleak yeah and you and also i mean at least in some of the sort of documentary anecdotal accounts like talking about men and bo boys and men it's like it was also like men like you know oh, yeah. 20 i think there was one account of like like this 29 year old man was like pursuing her you yeah, know it was like, like a 16, 16 year old yeah. you know and so it's like it's already it's pretty uh you know it's uncomfortable to like think about you know um just like some weird dynamics going on well, and it's unfortunate um, because she didn't see it the, like the way that we're making it sound she didn't see it that way like she's like ooh, like he likes me like no matter what you yeah know? i mean it sounds like that they she was dating him or they were in a, some kind of relationship or like it was you know so it's that very you know i think and again i, I don't want to like do too much sort of like psycho analysis or anything but there is going to be this thread of like the men in her life, like her, her being this individual person, but also there is this constant like call back to like how, how men like relate to her, like her, uh, the way she kind of needs them for approval, acceptance, protection, and also being able to, uh, some say manipulate or also just like navigating the, the very male dominated world, especially of, glamour fashion entertainment yeah, right so it's all it's all being set already is my all, point. all from a jim's uh, crispy fried chicken so from the confines of jim's crispy fried chicken the 17 year old vicky lynn hogan gazed out the window dreaming of the day she would make her big escape Eventually, her gaze was redirected when she fell in love with 16-year-old fry cook Billy Smith, who I guess like, took, uh, took over for aspirations for, for a minute there. The two married and had a son when Anna was 18. They named their son Daniel. Daniel quickly became the center of Anna's world as her marriage to Billy fell apart. Her life's focus then became her son, who to Anna represented the lifelong opposite of loneliness. Through Daniel, yeah. Anna finally found the unconditional love that she had so intensely longed for. Yeah, I, th I think that was another quote was saying, like, if I have a kid, if I have a child, like, I'll never be alone. Yeah. Um, so... Already, like it's, it's like, and again, folks. I mean, if you're familiar with the Anna story, like just that idea is already devastating. And I'm not even halfway through this first outline, uh, mm -hmm. but getting ahead of myself. So, with child in tow, Anna moved back to Houston with her mother, where she briefly held different jobs, including gigs at Walmart and Red Lobster. Realizing that these jobs did not suit her big dreams nor her most base level financial needs, she took a risk that would change her life forever. She auditioned to be an exotic dancer at the aptly named gentleman's club, the executive suite. Does that remind you, know, you of a place that you and I went? <laughs> <laughs> the office. The lounge. office. Because <laughs> uh, the, the whole thing is you can, you know, you, you call your wife. You're like, sorry, honey, I, I'll be staying late at the executive suite. Yeah. And it's like, it's like uh, in every college town, there's a bar called the library. Right. You know, um, but, you know, working at Walmart, like I, I tell you, like whenever I'm at a Walmart, there's always there's always that the cutie. And you're like, 
I did not just see her at the Walmart. I know, which is so judgmental. Like, but like, I mean, dude, I've seen like a bait. One time I was on tour, we're in like Arkansas, and like there was a supermodel working at the Arby's. Like, it, yeah. it was out of control. Um, yeah, it's just a little different, I guess, in in big cities. But um, yeah, I guess she uh, when she would drive by, she would see the neon sign that had a girl doing like a two step, like like. Just, you know like doing like a little mm-hmm. little dance move and she was so fascinated by that 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 she went in and like right away someone came up to her oh are you here to audition you're gorgeous you know and uh, she was so nervous like but she was it, too intrigued so she could barely walk into the place let alone take her clothes off and she would often cry in the de- dressing room out of embarrassment uh but like the other dancers like supported her you know it's it, those places can be it, they it go one of two ways it's either super tight-knit between the dancers and they all got each other's backs or they all fucking hate each other uh that, that's been my experience working in that world as a uh, humble event promoter <laughs> in strip clubs <laughs> yeah yeah um, but she, they explained the, the strip game to her, and she discovered that she had a niche talent that the others didn't really have, and that was her voice. She was a talker. Like, she, you know, her Amazonian stature combined with her small-town girl-next-door innocence helped her become one of the most successful girls at the club. Because, well, she knew, like, she felt so uncomfortable going up there and dancing, but, you know, you, you only get tipped when, when you're dancing. But if you sit down and you can keep this guy talking for, like, an hour then they're going to give you a lot more. And she was, she could do that better than anyone. And that really became like, she, she's always had this thing. That's what captivate, like why America was captivated by her. She had this, like, despite being like this goddess, she was also approachable. She had that kind of personality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and very, that- very much like a, and I mean, really the very, like, like the traditional sort of like feminine qualities. Totally. Like, very like doting giving attention uh want you know just like being kind seductive like a lot of things that you would kind of see as like sort of like the ideal like 50s housewife totally but then also yeah. mixed with like a stripper's body and like a sexual fantasy you know yeah she had it all, man. I'm telling you. Had it all. She had it all. Now, before we continue, we have to set the stage for the strip club scene in 1980s Houston, Texas. What a time to be alive. Business was booming. There was an influx of money coming into Houston from the oil industry, as well as many other top-earning industries that found a home in Texas. This economic boon, coupled with the introduction of the country's first mega strip clubs, amounted to somewhat of a golden era for dancing girls. Not to mention that the breast implant procedures were like they those were developed in Houston in the 1960s. Like breast implants oh, were like wow. that was like the state of the art like procedure that you can get done. You'd go to Houston for it. Um, and by the 80s, it was somewhat perfected. So Anna saved up for her first of several breast augmentation procedures and began working at several other clubs in Houston. Uh, most of which were like these mega clubs. Now the difference between like a mega club. Is a, it's like picture like the Bada Bing from Sopranos would be a mega club like huge stage down the middle multiple VIP areas giant bar you know may, maybe food where as opposed to like here's a bar here's a stage you turn your bar stool around you're watching the stage you turn back around you're looking mm-hmm. at the bar you know the again mega clubs. Um, and Houston, still to this day, is one of the leaders uh, in strip clubs per capita in the country. Um, I think they're number two, if not number one, uh, next to Portland. And I, I know Atlanta's up there, too. Those are like the, the three biggies. 
is, is Atlanta, huh. Houston, and, and Portland uh, as, as far as that goes. So prior to her implants, Anna was relatively small-chested and, as we said earlier, relied on her gift of gab. She would even go so far as to use an angelic, almost baby-talk voice a la Jane Mansfield when dealing with her clients. Her success just from speaking to clients became the envy of many a dancers who had to work much harder to bring in the kind of cash that Anna did. Again, remember, she's Vicky Lynn at this time. Vicky Lynn is such a stripper name, dude. Vicky Lynn. Yeah. yeah like, right. Ooh. Uh, throughout but the- I can also completely understand, like, you know, the desire you, you're trying to reinvent yourself. You right. Know? Like, well, a, I mean, a lot of actors and actresses, you know, Hollywood, you know, they have aliases. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Then it's, and it's not really you, you know, it's not really you and you're leaving everything behind. Yeah. So throughout the life of Anna Nicole Smith, there are a few moments that make up the backbone of her entire story. Her move to Mejia being the first, the birth of her son being second, her start as a stripper being the third and the fourth and arguably the most important of all major moments, her introduction to oil tycoon Howard J. Marshall II. This yep. this is like uh, one of those things where just the stars were aligned and like well no one knew either of them like neither one was you know f- famous in like a media way like this is about to start this storm that's going to last for decades and also I just want to back up to the breast implant surgery uh, that this also that is of the times I feel like now you hear. It's like we've, as a culture, we've shifted and we, we're all about the butt, the ass. Um, sure, the BBL, and it's like yeah. You, you hear the BBL. Uh, it seems like all the workouts, it's like focused on that. But the 90s, the late 80s and 90s, like that was this boom of uh, big old, tig old bitties. Yeah. yeah. And like the fake <laughs> boobs and like, and then, and then that's going to, you know, this pamela anderson playboy baywatch like carmen like look at that whole era of like this is kind of what um the 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 beautiful sexy woman of the 90s kind of that was one very strong lane well and again so it's kind of trippy to even just think about how that was such a a part a big part of the story was just like i've got to get my breast implants i got it and then like that's the missing that's key, the key you know? yeah exactly and we'll find that that starts this lifelong you know worth the trouble for her but yeah i mean and also it puts her in the realm of like these like a jane mansfield even like dolly parton you know where it's like they're known for for being talented and then they're known for that <laughs> you know? yeah. mm-hmm. because it's front and center you know you can't ignore them So Howard J. Marshall II was an East Coast-born Yale alumni who worked for the Roosevelt administration for oil projects. He would later become uh, associated with the Koch brothers, and by the time he met Vicky Lynn Hogan, he was a billionaire. He was also 87 years old. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this guy, such an accomplished life. This is one of the most controversial uh, parts of her life, that, you know, this entire relationship. Yeah. So, and it, it, I'm sure this is going to be uh, in definitely in the next episode uh, for sure. This, oh, yeah. This relationship I, oh, with, with Marshall. For sure. I so. mean, we're, we're going to get into it right now, but, you know, it's like the, the thing, too, that's ironic about it is it started like this relationship starts so much trouble in her life and caused so many problems. But the one thing that wasn't the problem was the relationship itself. Like that was fine. It was everything surrounding it, and after it ended, that that caused the problems. And it, you know, 
But yeah. By all accounts, he was kind of like a sweetheart tycoon. He aged like absolute shit, though. I mean, he looked ghastly. Well, like, the whole yeah, the 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 visual the. The optics, yeah. right? So you've you've got an eighty seven year old dude who like I don't think can really get out of his chair or like I don't I don't I don't really point. see pictures of him out of his chair in this era much. He's got the classic like the skin that looks like you know when your notebook uh, paper has gotten <laughs> wet and then it dries out again. And I mean he you know in some of these pictures he's got like a oxygen tank or something, and then you've got this like. In her early 20s, just absolutely gorgeous. The sort of the epitome of youth and vitality, uh, blonde American woman. And they're taking pictures together. And so it's, I think it'll be interesting to sort of like (laughs) figure out how to make analysis of this relationship without passing judgment. Because that was like really what, this was such a huge part of it was the judgment uh, that other people placed upon the relationship. Um, and when you really get into it, it's again, it almost, it's this tabloidal thing of just feeling so like, wow, I'm just really up in some other people's business. Right. Uh, but yeah, from, from the outset, it looks like your classic gold digger. Absolutely. Type of and situation. You're talking, the young, be- yeah. Like you're talking Texas, like oil money, mm-hmm. fucking big blonde hair, red nails, fucking big fake boobs. Like it's, it, yeah, it has all those elements. Um, and I mean, again, like maybe he just looks so, again, like ghastly, like Crypt Keeper ish, like in these pictures because he's next to like someone who's goddamn like perfect, you know? Right. So, like, if you take her away, he actually, like, you know, might just look like a normal old guy but i mean even by old billionaire standards like he is beyond mr burns by the way i don't have a problem with billionaires you know some people in this world are going to be super rich we just got to deal with that like you know fuck it like you know like i I don't know but uh howard's second wife was in the late stages of alzheimer's and despite his adoration for his wife her condition left him feeling unimaginably lonely and depressed while the man had everything one could buy he did not have a female confidant someone just to talk to it would be in the strip clubs of Houston that he would find what he was missing. And now people get this whole part of Anna's life wrong. As with everything in this story, it's more complicated. Like men are always going to be perverts, even if they're sexually inactive or handicapped. But in his old age, he was looking for connection more than anything. He wanted to be liked and he wanted to be cared about and not by his ungrateful family or yes men under his employee. A lot of dancers will tell you how one aspect of their job is almost like a therapist. Uh, and some gals are more keen on that than others. You know, so mm-hmm. Anna saw this this guy who, yeah, had it all. I'm sh- I mean, she wasn't she didn't have to try to get money out of him because he had so much he was just pouring it out there and you know that led her to spend more time with him get to know him realize oh my god like he's lonely just like i am like you know like what i've been missing he's been missing but for different reasons now hard howard marshall the second's first strip club a love affair (laughs) keyword first was with mm-hmm. a woman named Lady Walker, which if they're like, okay, I, a Vicky Lynn Hogan isn't after this guy for his money, but a Lady Walker probably was, dude. <laughs> um, yeah. 
But, you know, he was attracted to her caring demeanor, her taste for glamour, sense of humor, and Howard showered his new lady, pun intended, with gifts, going so far as to write her regular checks, almost like a salary for being his lady friend. But unfortunately, Lady Walker died during a facelift procedure that Howard was paying for in 1991. So like yeah, like I need yeah. I need this operation. She dies. So now more distraught than ever, Howard wheels himself into Gigi's cabaret, where he meets a gorgeous, tall, busty blonde with a heart of gold named Vicky Lynn Hogan. We- wheels himself. Okay, I mean, I will say, uh, you <laughs> Someone know, wheeled me, him in, dude. Someone I definitely think, wheeled him in. I'm gonna back up and say that, like, I do feel like I do have some. I feel like a billion dollars is too much money for one person to have. I think there's there's an issue of like wealth hoarding in this world that I think, you know. I, as long as they spend it a- on people like Anna, I'm fine with it. <laughs> yes. Um, also, like, I feel like Oil Tycoon is generally seen as like, <laughs> I'm sure that there's, there's some shit that if you go digging around. Um, so it's not that this... It's it's kind of interesting because on the on sort of the worst side you've got this like old rich like horny sleazy dude who's like going to strip clubs in his wheelchair <laughs> and then and then yeah who's just like a lecherous man and then you've got this like manipulative sexy woman who's like I'm going to charm all the money out of him the gold digger thing but at the same time I do believe that there is this other element where like these were two kind of like misunderstood lonely people who did find like a truly like genuine sense of being and place and uh, belonging with each other. Um, And that's what they claim uh, in their relationship. And then it's kind of like them versus, you know, the media, them versus, uh, members of his family, as we'll yeah, get into yeah. later, who, uh, who, who felt like it was a ploy for his money. Uh, and I think what it is, is it's kind of a, a complicated mixture of both. I do sincerely believe that if he didn't have a billion dollars, I don't think their relationship would have progressed <laughs> to the level that it did. But I do think that within that, it's almost like that, is where they, they they did find a connection within each other. Like if they absolutely hated each other's guts, I don't think it would have worked no. uh, to the degree it did. Um, and I think maybe also when you are a rich billionaire oil tycoon, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, maybe money can't buy you happiness or you're, you're, you're still like this, it's lonely at the top. You've got a billion dollars. Like that is also like, isolating not that i have a lot of sympathy for that but the fact is is like there was probably a lot of um ple- like joy or comfort in like i'm giving this money to this person yeah it's, you know so again i think it's i think it's it's pretty complicated and as we go on i would also like to just maybe think about how how we would view some of this these relationship dynamics uh in a 2023 kind of lens but anyway that's the that's the rant of one no yeah and and, you know i mean you're right like if he if he wasn't a billionaire the relationship probably wouldn't have blossomed the way that it had but i think it was it it wasn't her like oh what can i get from him again he was more than happy to give and he's like look you're a single mom you're fucking young as shit like let me buy you a house like let me fucking make sure that you have food on the table like you don't have it let me send a car for you like you don't need to take the bus like let, let me make and and he did it to the point which could be seen as manipulative like for instance if he was like in his 50s 
right and was doing this then he would have all this power over it that he could ply on her sexually but that wasn't the case because physically that was just wasn't even in the cards at the time so he, right. he made it really easy I, for yeah. her to want to be there no matter what right i guess it's kind of like um i and it seems like our culture has first the the whole idea of like the sugar daddy has always been kind of a sort of looked at uh, well, funny <laughs> type of dynamic and it seems like now if anything this is where it's like that reassessment where it seems like maybe the uh, get your sugar money, girl. daddy get your money yeah girl. the get sugar the daddy girl. dynamic seems to have been is seems to be at like an all-time high in terms of approval of like yes do this um i mean i know people who have been sugar babies and it's like i think that i guess i don't know that seems like there is a way in which that dynamic can work for people if if both uh parties you know are consenting to the terms then it's kind of that thing about judgment like well who are you to judge if this is working for both of them right you know what's funny though it's like but, i feel like the the <laughs> expectation that i'm sure people have when uh searching for a sugar daddy or or entertaining that idea is like pretty woman or like like indecent mm -hmm. proposal or something and the reality is look at the picture of anna with with howard j marshall like, like or j howard marshall just that that that's the uh that's the reality most times it's not going to be like yeah. a handsome suave tuxedo laden guy that's going to nicely put a diamond necklace around your neck it's going to be a really and, old yeah. dude that just wants to like look at your boobs while he like tries to breathe <laughs> He's just like that one last. If if my last breath can be her titty air, please the air around yeah. her boobies, and again, and now let's get it. Like the whole thing is now we've seen how. I guess there's always been that dynamic where, if the it seems like there's an interesting balance where like if the man is kind of the one in power that that has sort of been a little bit more of like this is okay or like hell yeah you're a pimp dude um but it's like once it seems that he's so old it feels like there's this tipping of the dynamic that it's like oh is she the manipulator in it whereas you know famously leonardo dicaprio like people kind of realize he hasn't dated anyone under 25 in the last like 20 years yeah. or whatever you got like Mick Jagger and like you got, there's so many of like Steven Tyler, like all those dudes are dating like way, way under their age, but because of maybe their prominence or maybe that they still have this perceived vitality, even though they're old, it's always sort of seen as like, it's seen as something different though. Now I will say it people, more people are starting to be like, Oh, that's kind of creepy, but Definitely in the for a very long time, it was kind of seen as like, oh, wow, well, he's still got it as an old man. Right. But once he's in a wheelchair, it's kind of like, uh oh, uh oh, like she's yeah. a gold digger. Right. Well, and also, like, I feel like in the case of someone like a Leonardo DiCaprio or something, it's like, yeah, but he like he. Yeah, they're young, like way younger than him. But he's dating like supermodels that are like professional on their own. And like, don't you know, there, there's not like this like kind of give and take thing you know it's just like mm -hmm. i'm into you because you're attractive you're into me because i'm fucking like a-list fucking superstar like you don't need me i'm not giving you money like i'm not paying your bills you know right I, which it's, it's just which is a, a major aspect of, of this whole thing and that transfers nicely into the next point uh be, as far as making a name right you know being a famous person on her own right so howard you know he was immediately smitten by vicky and vice versa anna had always maintained that the relationship was never sexual it was comforting 
loving and grandfatherly. Granted, he was definitely into her boobs and encouraged her to be bikini-clad as much as possible. Uh, however, they never, according to Anna, had sex. It was, it was impossible. It wasn't in, even in the cards. Now, soon after meeting, Howard began showering his new obsession with gifts, and the two introduced each other to family and friends, which is when the trouble begins. Howard had two sons, all right, and his son Pierce was the worst and meanest and never approved of his father's relationships or use of money, but going back to Lady Walker and even prior, all right, and like he, like classic like son that wants to take over the empire kind of deal. Um, right, again with the like the movie where, because also it's the oil empire and it seems like the, the son who's like never going to be good enough. Right, right, and oh, once he dies, sh- yeah, and he's like, well, at, le- when, at least when the old man kicks the bucket, like I'm gonna get this inheritance. It's like and now- Billy Madison, but instead of like, but uh, <laughs> Billy Madison is Anna, and and, and the Billy- dad is Howard, and then the guy that that he uh, has the contest with at the end is is Pierce. It's literally just like Billy Madison. <laughs> <laughs> yes and no, but yeah, yeah, yeah. the threatening of the, ne- the the like. The begrudging next in line being threatened by the shiny new, you know, plaything. Uh, yeah, for lack of a better term, yeah, playmate. But we're not there yet. Playmate. So, um, you know, and she was a sweet single mother who needed a helping hand, and he was a lonely old man in the castle on the hill who just needed a friend. And it's better to have a friend with a pretty face, right? So within a week of meeting, Howard proposed marriage to Anna. Anna initially refused as she said she would only marry him after she made something of herself on her own terms. She had no interest in being a gold digger per se. Howard wanted to marry her not only for his own happiness, but also to ensure that Anna would be taken care of after his death. Besides her drive to make it on her own, there was another reason Anna refused the proposal. She was in a fresh romantic relationship. This next segment... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like I, this was mind blowing. Like no one really talks about this now. It's it's featured prominently in the documentaries, but I'm sure there's going to be folks out there that did not know this. But uh, besides meeting mm-hmm. Howard in 1991, uh, Anna also met Sandy Powledge, a garden supply saleswoman whom Anna met while partying at a local gay bar. And again, something most folks don't know is that Anna was essentially openly bisexual her whole life. Um, And not just like in like the playboy, like sounds good in the interview way. Like she was in long term relationships with women, like borderline monogamous. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, her most successful romantic relationships were with women, which nice. But uh, (laughs) they, they met at a bar called The Hill in northwest Harris County. And Anna pursued Sandy as Sandy was too intimidated. So you have Sandy. If you look at a picture of what Sandy looked like, she was a a garden supply saleswoman okay with like a short haircut a little a little more butch let's say then you have anna 23 years old getting sent to the bar like going out for the night with all this new jewelry makeup hair done fancy dress getting dropped off in a limo all at howard's expense right or you know howard j marshall's expense but Mm -hmm. um uh, but then, then you have Sandy, and so Sandy, no way was she going to talk to her. She's also older than Anna, but Anna came up to her. Now, according to Sandy, Anna took after Howard in that she would shower her new lover with elaborate gifts like jewelry, flowers, and extravagant date nights, complete with rides in a white limo, all funded by her relationship with Howard Marshall. Uh, and their first date was actually to a steakhouse, and Anna picked Sandy up in the white limo, uh, but she even brought her a change of clothes in case... She was dressed too casual because <laughs> she's like, I don't think huh. this girl's good because mm-hmm. uh, that was also a way for Anna to cloak the relationship in public. Right. Because Howard, I mean, everyone knew that that they were kind of like a thing, like within like the rich guy mm-hmm. world and the strip club world. 
Everyone yeah. kind of knew. And in order to make it seem like she wasn't like in a, in a lesbian relationship, uh, she wanted, you know, Sandy to look as glamorous as she did to a point. So it would just seem like two rich girls going out. You know, like like, yes. to, like to dinner as friends, as opposed to like a relationship where there was clear gender roles like being displayed. Um, and, and you know, as we there, there was not a sexual relationship with Marshall, and um, you know, Anna, Anna yeah. Nicole had you know she was not receiving like that part of the relationship. So again, as we'll get into it uh, throughout her life and career, she was seen with many boyfriends and flings and. Uh, maybe not the girlfriends as much publicly, but I think that that also, you know, completely will contribute to a lot of the controversy with this relationship is because being um, committed and in a relationship with um, Howard Marshall never really stopped her from pursuing other romances. Right. Which, it, again, I don't know. Nowadays seems like a, a thing that people would be like, go off, queen, like get the bag. And also get the nut, like you know, <laughs> right? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, but, yeah, do do so, you? You know, I don't. I don't have a problem. Yeah, with it. you do. You live your life. As if everyone's cool with it, everyone's cool with it, right? Right. And uh, also, you know, we keep saying, like, I keep, like, there's so many names going on, you know, Vicky Lynn Hogan and Nicole Smith. There's, you know, I keep saying Howard Marshall, J. Howard Marshall II, Marshall II. Like, just just know that we know who we're talking about. Right. I might be, I might, <laughs> we know what we're talking about. Yeah. You better know it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm kind of just saying Anna Nicole. Um, I yeah. know that she hasn't adopted or, like, discovered that name yet. And, um, if I'm missing the J in Marshall, I sincerely apologize. Yeah. Marshall is the name. That's the last name. That's Marshall. That's the big head honcho oil man. Right. And there's, you know, there, there's a couple uh, other infamous Howards that will be, get involved in this story later. And that's kind of we'll have to get our Howard straight later. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, it's going to get it's going to get more confusing. But the romance between Anna and Sandy was a whirlwind of heat and flash. The couple got tattoos with and with Sandy getting a portrait of Anna and Anna getting very tiny Sandy's initials because she Sandy knew that she wanted to become a model. She's like, don't get like a huge tattoo. So she got it like where her underwear would cover it. Um, classic place for a dancing gal to get a tattoo. Um, now, according to Sandy, Anna's relatives, uh, who ended up briefly living with her at, at this house that Howard bought for her, or Marshall bought for her, um, they were well aware of her fluid sexuality and all silently agreed to keep it to themselves. So, you know, just, well, why bother? It, it doesn't make a difference. Like, she's doing well. Who cares? Now, despite the decadent dates and tattoos, things were not always candy and kisses. According to Sandy, Anna had always had a problem with pills and alcohol. But really, as we will find out, Anna had a problem with all vices, especially sex. Midway through the timeline of Sandy and Anna's romance, Anna met her next love, Melissa Missy Byram, a fellow stripper who she met while working at the club. This relationship, according to Byroom, was also a whirlwind romance. So she's got these three relationships going on at once. She's got, you know, Marshall. You know, she's she, she got the sugar daddy guy. Mm -hmm. You know, that that's kind of I go home to him. I call him every day. I love him. He takes care of me. It's again more grandfatherly than anything. But she still needs to give the air of like I'm in a relationship with you. You know, well, just, while mm -hmm. it doesn't have the sexual aspect of it, like by all other means, it, it was a real romantic relationship. Um, and then she has Sandy and now Missy. And now Missy was kind of like the party friend, fellow dancing girl. Like, let's fucking get the money from these guys and we'll go home together afterwards. Sandy mm -hmm. was like your classic 
you know, like quote unquote, like classic, like lesbian relationship where it was more like pure and more about like the romance and, and less about like the adventuresome nature as like Missy's was. Um, but she's also going on dates with men as well, scattered throughout all of this. Uh, sensing a growing distance between himself and Anna due to all this, Howard ramped up the gifts and purchased Anna a Corvette, a sprawling ranch complete with Arabian horses, cosmetic surgeries, and tons of jewelry. After all, in the words of Anna's number one idol, Marilyn Monroe, diamonds are a girl's best friend. I had to. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. However, Anna stuck to her guns and turned down yet another marriage proposal from Howard. This proposal took place at a Red Lobster. Where I love that Anna used to work at a Red Lobster. Like, I wonder if they would have gotten together. Actually, Howard probably could have gotten more out of Anna had he had saved her from a Red Lobster where she was making real shit money as opposed to a strip club where she was, like, the highest earning girl. Like, rescuing yeah. a girl from Red Lobster is really the move. Like, fellas, you're never going to go into a strip club and be like, let me get you out of here. Let me take you away from all this. Right. They don't want I was that. Gonna, Red Lobster? I was gonna They're say, probably ready like to go the, right uh, now. Bags packed. And again, it and it does all really play into a lot of kind of uh, you know <laughs> conventional thoughts um, because it's like there you have that classic you know the save a hoe right. the, <laughs> d- d- she can't be saved, bro. Like, uh, but she can if you have a billion. You gotta have a billion. Oh, yeah. You can't drop like a couple thousand even. Yeah, uh, you need to have a billion, and because that's. Yeah, and I can't remember if you said it, but like she did stop dancing after that. And I think that that is also an interesting part of the uh, strip club dynamic is that sometimes, you know, because there's a lot going. Yes, there is the bodies and the, the just the more raw, rampant sexuality of like seeing bodies on display and the male gaze and all that. But then there's this whole thing of like loneliness. And then there's there is this common thread of of men thinking like, you know, I, I could get you out of this place. Yeah, baby. why does she need to do this? Um, she doesn't need to. She yeah, chose yeah. to because fucking if you look good, work that shit while you can. There's no shame in the strip game at all. Uh, yeah, not not at all. There's uh, no, there's no shame. There's there's in any job that you do, there is almost always a degree of exploitation. Um, your labor is being used to help someone else make more money than more you. money than you make um and just with stripping and sex work because it it there's one less degree like your it's literally your body right, right. so that there's always this extra moral like mm, i don't know is that okay you're being exploited but like i you everyone's kind of getting exploited for their labor in a lot of ways so it, but i think also with strip clubs there is just these there's there can be a little more uh temptations for uh, drug abuse or just really unhealthy lifestyles uh, because it's a strip club, it's late at night that kind of also contribute to that. Yeah. Uh, stigma. Sure. And you know, like, unfortunately, like there's, a, I feel like now maybe it's waning a little bit, at least in, in more metropolitan era areas, but like, you know, the, the, the cliche is if you're a, if you're a stripper or a dancing gal, whatever, however you want to call it, and you're trying to date someone like a lot of guys get too jealous and like unless like a lot of girls find relationships in the club because the kind of biggest secret or the thing that they're most nervous about sharing with someone is already out on the table so if, if mm-hmm. the, like you that's where you meet guys that may not necessarily have a problem with you doing that as opposed to like you meet a girl you're hitting it off and then you find out that she does that like some there's a lot of men out there that you know jealousy insecurity absolutely yeah. um they're called civilians at least in the porn world 
Right. It's like <laughs> I love that. It's they're, all they're military. Porn, they're like, like don't. Yeah, like you, we can't date civilians because they're just they're not going to be comfortable, um, you know, knowing that, right? They're going to show it all and get have all sorts of penetrative, wild sex on camera as their job, you know? Yeah, and give weird greasy lap dances to guys like me. Um, but <laughs> so I, I would not be okay with my girl giving me a lap dance. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Um, but also, uh, a fun fact, Nicki Minaj also used to work at a Red Lobster. So Red Lobster just has like a nice stable of uh, beautiful ex-employees. Um, and also, I'm just wondering like <laughs> how the proposal went. Like, and he's like, there's one more cheddar biscuit. And like, he like, takes it and there's like a ring oh, in the it. Red Lobster. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, honey, get oh. the captain's feast tonight. It's a special night. Like, it's... Know. It's yeah, and it's hard to not have a couple of laughs. I mean, again, in in looking at the pictures of if you haven't looked at the pictures, like I mean, it's I guess it's just the it's something that you don't see too often. So it's oh, no, you don't. <laughs> yeah, go look up. Go. I'm sure you have seen them, but if you haven't, like refresh yourself of just the photos of. Oh, what do you think is going to be our part um, two uh, episode flyer, so. dude? But um, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Well, yeah. So Anna had an insatiable appetite for everything: food, fun, money, sex, attention, everything. Despite being in a relationship with Missy, Anna still found herself and Sandy, by the way, Anna still found herself sleeping with other people. One of these people was a photographer who took some classy topless photos of Anna, probably as some sort of foreplay, you know, and what, but those photos ended up in the hands of Playboy Scout Eric Redding, who was not so much drawn to her striking looks as he was the personality that she exuded. Anna had always dreamed of gracing the pages of Playboy, and thanks to Eric Redding, her wish was granted, and then some. Anna was selected to be the cover girl of the March 1992 issue of Playboy magazine. And that is where we're going to leave you this week. So let me, so I will say, uh, this, yeah, it's a great ending. It's kind of like laying down the foundation. And then uh, next episode, we'll start to get into where she really starts to become uh, this, you know, a famous person. And also uh, throughout this time, you know, she had these uh, ambitions of, of this. It was all, you know, she definitely was very savvy and getting, where she was obviously she was very conventionally beautiful and attractive but she you know at a young age you know knew like okay i there's just this interesting thing where there's a lot of men who i think are already sort of like very predatory and preying on her and then there's right. also her kind of taking that and like well how can i use like i'm getting so much male attention wanted and unwanted aggressive um or not and just people sort of wanting something from her and then Anna Nicole kind of learning how, well, how can I use that uh, to my advantage? And I yeah. think that that's what kind of makes it an interesting uh, story uh, because it, it's, and it's in some ways it's hard to, I don't know, it's, it's hard to, to say exactly. Is it like, are you supposed to say, oh, well, all the, you know, all these men are doing this and I'm just going to, you know, say, you know, fuck all of them. And I'm just, you know, I'm going to just make an quote unquote honest living or whatever. It's like, right. no, she's, she has, she had her own, you know, dreams to be, yeah, like super inspired by Marilyn Monroe to, you know, kind of be like America's sweetheart. Well, you and, know? And, but also wanting, like wanting to be in Playboy to her, that was, 
like as good as it, it as it was going to get. Like she never thought of like being like an actual fashion model or anything like that because she had already done topless dancing. So mm-hmm. that was kind of already like in her repertoire. So it's like, what's like kind of the highest echelon of being like an erotic, you know, entertainer. And at the time it was Playboy magazine, you know, like yeah, big time celebrities Playboy, did it. Right. And I mean, Playboy, not quite a dump because it was just so pop- popular and, for so long but you know after Hugh Hefner's death a lot of kind of Playgirl could be a dump though. A lot of dirt yeah Playgirl is definitely a dump Um, and why it didn't work is a very interesting psychological study Uh, but obviously I think at this point in our time like kind of after Hefner's death and some of the dirt revealed Mm. it's kind of like a lot of that like we're a classy mag kind of facade got shattered but really it's I do believe in like the 80s and 90s there was much more of this impression that Playboy was it was the line between right. sort of like just just like old school like glamour and pornography it, the women were naked but it there they were much more successful in creating this idea that it was this it was it was a classy mag and like the as the joke goes like I read it for the articles right um yeah. so it's just at that point it had it had a I mean it was it was a very like powerful um, presence in culture for a very long time and of course it, it it's always had its detractors of people saying that it's exploitative and it was a lot of that was happening uh, behind the scenes that didn't come out so much later um, and maybe it's a no-brainer that yes a bunch of men taking pictures of naked women is going to turn to be a little <laughs> sketchy. Uh, but yeah, just in, in the nineties and then again, kind of, and really leading up to the two thousands where a lot of Anna Nicole's story takes place is kind of, it was like a high mark of playboy where it kind of existed in this like super mainstream way in a way that, um, you know, like hustler or penthouse or like hardcore pornography is never just going to like exist in just like a socially acceptable way. But it was also, you know, full frontal female nudity. Right. Yeah. Just not like opened. Um, but yeah. So, <laughs> so next, uh, next time on Culture Dumps, uh, we're gonna get to the the birth of Anna Nicole Smith proper. Uh, we're gonna talk the Anna Nicole show. We're gonna talk guests. We're gonna talk mega mega superstar you know and becoming one's incredibly fast uh, somewhat too fast as well as kind of the beginning of the downturn uh, that's uh, that's next time on culture dumps um in the meantime folks be sure you check out our store culturedumps.bigcartel.com it really helps us out if you pick up a little item for yourself also speaking of helping us out patreon.com slash culture dumps um I did put up the, if you don't have a Hulu subscription, you can watch the 2020 on our Patreon. I, I did put the link up, so make sure you check it out while it's up there. Uh, that's at one of the lower tiers. We, we have like a, a $3 a month tier where all of our research material gets posted, as well as unpublished photographs, like, for instance, like mostly Woodstock 99 stuff. Um, and then it goes up from there for all our bonus episodes and things. But that is a huge way to help us out. Same with sharing the show, telling people about it, posting about it, share the episodes, all that stuff. We love it. and appreciate any support um i mean it's been 100 episodes so fucking i mean for us to be motivated to keep it going this long it's literally because of you guys so thank you so much for for all that um but yeah next time we'll, we'll be on part two of the saga of anna nicole smith i'm ryan lichten i'm parks miller keep, keep on, on dumping, dumping.